Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from our slightly unique perspective. You know, the relationship between land and water is something we talk about quite a bit here. And I think it deserves mentioning more often and occasionally examining it in greater detail. With blackwater systems, there's kind of a unique set of environmental relationships which create and maintain these habitats and their physical, you know, physical, chemical, and ecological makeup. And it all starts, of course, with water. Now, we often muse in the hobby about what's the appropriate pH for blackwater systems, and it's really hard to pin down one number. You hear discussions on you know, biotope forums and specialty blackwater forums where people get real angry about this, which is kind of funny. And the reality is many blackwater systems are far more acidic than we could ever hope to achieve in our tanks or even want to. Now, where does this acidity come from? Well, this is the interesting part. Recent studies have found that most of the acidity in black waters can be attributed to dissolved organic substances and not to dissolved carbonic acid. In other words, organic acids from compounds found in soil and decomposing plant material as opposed to inorganic sources. Black waters are almost always characterized by high percentages of organic acids. Interestingly, though, these waters are surprisingly low in dissolved organic compounds. In fact, the Rio Negro black waters are theorized to have a low DOC concentration because of the diluting effect of significant amounts of rainfall. And because they're diluted by clear waters from nearby systems, you know, nearby river systems that are low in dissolved organic compounds. So it's sort of a self-regulating kind of thing to some extent, isn't it? And interestingly, in the podzol soil, the podzolic soil, you remember that stuff, it's a type of, a type of soil, do, do look that up on Google, it's worth looking up. Most of the extractable substances in the surface litter layer, that is the leaf litter layer, are humic acids, typically coming from, what, decaying plant material. And scientists have concluded that the greater input of plant litter leads to a greater input of humic substances into the groundwater. So in other words, those leaves that accumulate on the substrate are putting out significant amounts of humic acids, as we've talked about, you know, many times before. And although humic substances like, you know, fulvic acid are found in blackwater and clearwater habitats, the organic detritus, you know, from leaves and such, in blackwater contains more extractable fulvic acid than in clearwater habitats, as you might expect. The Rio Negro, for example, contains mostly humic acids, indicating that the suspended sediment selectively adsorbs humic acids from black water. So the low concentration of suspended sediments in rivers like the Rio Negro is one of the main reasons why high concentrations of humic acids are maintained. Interesting, right? So with little to no suspended sediment, there's no adsorbent surface other than the substrate of the river upon which these acids can be taken out of, i.e. absorbed. So when you think about it, all this kind of contributes to why black water has the color that it does too, right? Blackwater in the Amazon basin, for example, is colored sort of a reddish brown. Well, why? Well, it has those organic compounds dissolved in it, of course, and most light absorption is in the blue region of the spectrum. And water is almost transparent to red light, which explains the red coloration of the water. 
And many of those organic compounds come from the surrounding land, as we've touched on above. Oof, gets your head spinning a little bit, but it makes sense if you really slow down and think about it. Now, the relationship between terrestrial habitats and the aquatic environment is becoming increasingly apparent in these, you know, when we explore these areas. And the lack of suspended sediments, which create a sort of nutrient-poor condition in these habitats, doesn't do much to facilitate on-site production of aquatic food sources, right? So it places the emphasis on external factors. Many blackwater systems are simply too poor in nutrients to offer alternative food sources to our fishes. The importance of the relationship between the fishes and the surrounding terrestrial habitat, i.e. the forests, which get inundated you know, every season, is therefore pretty obvious, right? So fishes depend on the fruits, the seeds, and the insects, and the other materials which come from the surrounding terrestrial habitat for food. When these areas become inundated seasonally with water, more food sources are available to the fishes which reside in these habitats. So it kind of goes without saying that the preservation of the forests themselves is really important to the fishes. So if you take away the forests, you take away the fishes too. Interesting, right? And as we've hinted on previously, the availability of food at different times of the year in these waters also contributes to the composition of the fish community. So you'll get, you know, variations from season to season based on the relative abundance of these resources. Another example of these kind of interesting interdependencies between land and water are, are things that happen when trees fall. So it's not uncommon for a tree to fall in the rainforest, you know, with that punishing rain and the saturated ground kind of conspiring to easily knock over anything that's not deeply rooted. And so when these trees fall over, they often fall into small streams, or in the case of the Varzea or Agapo environments in the Amazon, you know, the ones I'm totally obsessed with, they fall in uh, and are submerged in the inundated forest floors when the waters return. And of course, they immediately impact their now aquatic environment, and that fulfills several functions when you think about it. First, it provides a physical barrier or separation from currents and offers territories for fishes to spawn in, providing a substrate for algae and biofilms to multiply on, and it provides places for fishes to forage among and hide in. An entire community of aquatic life forms uses a fallen tree for many purposes, and the tree trunks and the parts will last for many, many years, which kind of fulfills an important role in the aquatic ecosystems that they now reside in every time that the waters return. Now, shortly after falling into water, fungi and other microorganisms act to sort of colonize the surfaces, and the biofilms populate the bark and the exposed surfaces of the tree. Over time, the tree is going to impart many chemical substances, you know, those humic acids, tannins, sugars, etc., into the water. The fallen tree literally brings new life to the waters. The material that comprises the tree are known in ecology as alochthonous material. In other words, it's something that's imported into an ecosystem from outside of it. And we've talked about this several times before, right? So, of course, in the case of fallen trees, this includes leaves, fruits, seed pods, and all the material that falls or is washed into the water along with the branches and trunks that topple into the stream. These materials are known as coarse particulate organic matter. And the waters of these inundated forest floors, there's a lot of coarse particulate organic matter, and the community of the aquatic organisms, which are typically insects and crustaceans, has a high proportion of what we call shredders, which feed on this coarse particulate organic matter and break it up into tinier bits called, wait for this, fine particulate organic matter. This is really real. The scientists really do this. There's actually guys that classify this stuff. Gotta love that. (laughs) And of course, some fishes, like the larger caracins, catfishes, Um, even some other fishes like arowanas and so forth consume fallen fruits and seeds as part of their diet as well, 
which sort of aids in the refinement of the uh, coarse particulate organic matter. Other organisms make use of the fine particulate matter by filtering it from the water or accessing it in the sediments that result. And these alecthonous materials support a diverse food chain that's almost entirely based on our old friend, detritus. Yeah, that detritus, the stuff of nightmares for many dyed-in-the-world, you know, wood hobbyists and the stuff of dreams for many fishes who consume it and associate uh, their, essentially their survival to it. And although the forest floor receives substantially less sunlight than the open rivers, the nutrients, you know, and available light are utilized by algae, which may colonize the surfaces facing up into the sun. We see similar results like this in our aquariums, don't we? And of course, you know, the tree, getting back to that, like almost anything that's submerged will gradually decompose over long periods of time. That process isn't, you know, actively exploited by aquatic life forms at like every level. Hollowed out sections will be inhabited by fishes and exploited for the shelter that they offer. And of course, the aforementioned crustaceans and insects will utilize the tree in various ways. And interestingly, when you think about it, fish movement and species richness and population is directly affected by the physical and biological influence of fallen trees. And the deep beds of leaves that may be corralled by fallen trees, a sort of natural dam, will definitely limit some fish species, which can't tolerate the lower oxygen concentrations found in those deep litter beds. Other fishes take advantage of the physical barrier that a fallen tree presents to provide, you know, shelter for it from predatory species. And lots of adaptations have taken place over eons that allow fishes to exploit these changes to their environments caused by fallen trees. It's pretty hardcore stuff, and it's pretty interesting. Like so many things in nature, the complexity of blackwater habitats is more than what meets the eye. Chemically, biologically, and ecologically, blackwater habitats are like a weave of interdependencies with soil, water, and surrounding forests all functioning together to influence the lives of the fishes that reside within them. Now, no single factor can provide all the necessary components for fish populations to thrive. To damage or destroy any one of them could spell disaster for the fishes and for the ecosystem which supports them. That's why the brush fires that we've been reading about recently, the fires in the Amazon are just so terribly tragic, among other reasons. So it's therefore incumbent upon us to really, you know, protect and cherish these precious habitats for the benefit of future generations. It's not only vital for us to understand how these habitats are working in nature, it's important for us to be able to replicate some of their functions if we want to keep and breed the fishes that we love so much, which hail from these habitats. It truly is a most intimate relationship. Stay studious, stay diligent, stay observant, stay curious, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman. Thanks very much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.